Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 40. Today's guest is Lance Corporal Renee Hopcroft. Renee joined the intelligence branch of the New Zealand Army before transferring to military police and finishing at the top of her class. She then completed the mentally and physically demanding assessment and subsequent course to become a conduct after capture instructor. In this episode, we dive into her career and explore key themes like confidence, personal development, and embracing challenges. Steady, steady, nice and steady. Right, heel, come. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Renee, welcome to the podcast. We had a little bit of a technical hiccup at the beginning, but we're good to go. Yeah, good. Thank you for having me. Okay, so where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in a, I guess in the context of Canada, it would be a small town in New Zealand uh, called Palmerston North. So that's two hours north of Wellington for anyone who knows where New Zealand is. And what sort of things were you interested in in your childhood? I was interested in a range of activities. I loved sport and then I also loved music and um, I spent a lot of time outdoors with my friends just climbing trees and uh, in New Zealand it's open farmland and lots of greenery and so I spent a lot of time outside doing sports and hanging with friends. What sort of sports did you enjoy? Uh, I loved netball which is really big in New Zealand and um, we have a really big rugby culture as you know so uh, I did like watching rugby and playing here and there. It's not typically something every woman wants to get involved in is getting tackled and crawling around in the mud but um, yeah I enjoyed that and I played uh, basketball. I tried squash I don't know why, but I tried squash once. So, yeah, just a lot of different sports. I have no idea what netball is. So netball, uh, think of basketball. And then instead of being able to bounce the ball, you have to just throw the ball. And the person who's receiving the ball has to stand in place. They can't move with the ball. Yeah, and then you have defenders who um, have to try and get the ball away. And then you have nets and hoops where you score goals within a circle right okay and so when you're growing up did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you got older I always knew I wanted to join the military Um, Palmerston North where I lived there was a big military presence we had an air force base and also an army base um, really close by and a lot of people in Palmerston North were military so I kind of grew up seeing the environment and the culture of the military and it was something I was really interested in from a really young age. Did you have any family members in the military? No. So I had a great-grandfather who was in the military. I think back then it was the normal thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had my grandfather who was in the reserves uh, for a while. But apart from that, I was really the first kind of person to say, I want to join the military. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I guess in the States, you know, they're sort of on, on one end of the spectrum where everyone there loves the military 
and they have a lot of support. And then other countries, it sort of varies, uh, maybe by region within the country. But what is it like in New Zealand? What is the attitude towards the military? Um, so I would say that there is a really good attitude for the military. We are such a small country, so a lot of what we do is more peacekeeping um, operations and things like that. In cities where military is not normal, I like down south in the South Island, uh, I don't think it's as big, but in the North Island, especially around those bigger military bases, there's more of like a, a want for people to join. And then, so with Canada, I think our entire military, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Reserves, I believe everything, everyone included, is a little under 100,000. So what would the numbers be in New Zealand? I don't know specific numbers. Um, They vary, but if we're at 5,000 plus, I would be very surprised. Very small. Yeah, very, very small. So did you know that that was something that you wanted to do right out of high school or did you go to college first? Uh, No. So I, after high school, um, I knew at the end of high school that I did want to join the military. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't really know what I wanted to join as. I knew I wanted to join the army, but I didn't have a specific trade in mind. Um, So after the military, I decided just to get some work experience. I thought it would be really beneficial to live a civilian life a bit first and gain some more life experience before joining right away. So I worked for another government department for a full time. It was an office job. Didn't love it. <laughs> um, that was 40 hours of sitting behind a desk and I knew that was something I did not want to do for the rest of my career. So I did that for about a year and then after that I went and spent about six months uh, in Australia with my family, just spending time with them and um, Australia is really close to New Zealand. It's two hours away, so it's easy to jump from Australia to New Zealand. And then after that, I joined. So I think I was 20. And how did you end up choosing which occupation you wanted to do? Uh, As everyone does, you meet a recruiter. um, And I talked to the recruiter about what I kind of wanted in a job. Obviously, there's the normal army jobs where you're a soldier, infantry, things like that, and then uh, logistics. And although it all sounded great, I wanted to be challenged mentally as well. So when speaking to the recruiter, um, he said there were things like signals and also intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, My recruiter was a chef, so didn't know a lot about intelligence. And he kind of explained it to me as I would be like 007. Right. As recruiters would. As recruiters would. So uh, if anyone knows about intelligence, it's really not. You're not a 007 agent running around climbing buildings, things like that. But I didn't know that at the time. So I said, wow, that's cool. Um, I want to join as intelligence. And that's really where it started. And so what does the training look like when you first get in? What's New Zealand basic training like? Uh, So the course is 16 weeks long. Uh, And it's really just centered around infantry and learning how to be an effective soldier. So a lot of it is uh, going on exercise in the field, learning all of those skills that you need um, to be an infantry soldier and a soldier on the ground. Uh, It's very physical um, and you're doing PT pretty much all day, all day, sorry, all week. And it's also just learning about 
the New Zealand Army. So we don't really do any courses together with Navy and Air Force unless you're in a joint environment, but that's later on in your career. Okay, so even on basic training, it's just Army? Just Army, yeah. So um, everyone's there to be a part of the Army, so that's how the courses run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because here we have our basic training, but that includes everyone from the Army, Navy, and Air Force. They all do that same thing, and then they branch off into their different elements and occupations. Completely different. Ours is just you're either going uh, basic training Air Force, basic training Navy, basic training Army. So all of your instructors, they're all Army, and all the hierarchy and chain of command, all Army. Is there a fitness test required in order to get into the Army? Yes. So uh, when you first go through the recruiting process and you have your uh, aptitude testing, your medicals and your fitness tests, um, you have to run what's called the BEEP test. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if that's something over here, but the BEEP test, you have to get a specific score from memory for uh, females at 7.1, but don't quote me on that. And then you have to be able to do three push-ups at standard and then some sit-ups as well. So that's your below baseline, like you just wanting to join the military um, test or the Mm -hmm. army. And then after that, uh, you do two different army fitness tests on basic training. Okay. And how did you find your fitness level on there? Did you feel prepared or was it a little bit difficult? Um, I think... Back then, I really struggled with fitness. Uh, It wasn't really something I prioritized a lot. Um, I would say that through that period where I was uh, looking to join the military and doing those fitness tests, I really did just scrape through. I I did the bare minimum so that I could get onto basic training. So obviously, what that meant is once I was on basic training, I really, really struggled with my fitness. Did you have any times when you were kind of questioning your choice? All the time. So I... Uh, as I said, didn't prioritize my fitness. And I did do a lot of sport and things like that, but I was never, um, I did it for fun. I didn't do it for a job and I wasn't doing PT every day at the gym. Um, So when I got onto basic training and PT was every single day, lots of running, lots of um, weights uh, and things I wasn't used to, I really questioned myself and my ability I think it really did affect my self-confidence and then I was always at the back I was never going to be the first um so that meant on basic training I had to work double doubly as hard just to be able to perform and pass my fitness test so I could march off and be in the army right and then how did you mentally what sort of coping tools or how did you keep going when you felt like that I think it was really good that I had uh, friends on my basic who were definitely fitter than me, um, and I looked at them as like role models. Uh, A lot of the girls were really good at cardio, um, and so watching them do well and perform made me want to stay and perform as well. I think also, although I at that time didn't have a lot of self-confidence, I didn't want to quit. I always wanted to stay on and see where I could, I guess, get to. Mm -hmm. And I think the big thing too, that some people don't realize is basic training is basic training and the everyday life in the military, once you get past that is not like that. So then it's like, okay, then you have some time to determine, you know, okay, these are my weaknesses on basic training. So now I have time to work on it. It's going to be like a day job, or maybe you go for some more training, but basic training is not reflective of, you know, your entire military career. For sure. And basic training is also, they 
break you down to build you up. They want to build you up to be a soldier. So if you can't kind of handle that, then maybe it's not a place for you. But if you push yourself through it, as you said, life is completely different once you once you get off. And where we do basic training is it's called Waiudu, and it's a very, very small segregated place. Basic training is your life. You have no other life except for the people you have around you for 16 weeks. And it really puts you in that mindset of this is real life. But really, it's not. It's it's what you have to do to then be a part of the, the army. And what was the ratio of men to women when you were going through? 95% men, 5%, 5% women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, I would say out of like a whole company, you would have maybe 10 to 15 females and the rest were all males. And I know obviously every country is sort of different when it comes to that, but I mean, what's the attitude and how are you treated as a woman in the army? I think obviously time has changed now, but back when I was going through basic training, I wouldn't say that there was a male versus female mentality, but I think as a female, you still needed to try and prove yourself. Obviously, males and females are built differently, so you're not always going to be the fastest or the strongest, but you still needed to put in the the effort, maybe a little bit more than the average Joe Bloggs male. But if you were putting in that hard work and you were doing everything to try and meet the standard for fitness and things like that, then that was that was a good thing. You mm-hmm. were putting in effort and instructors saw that. They weren't just kind of targeting you because you were a female. Right, so more based on performance yeah performance and and showing that you're there for the right reasons Mm -hmm. and so after basic training then what does your training look like uh so after basic training uh you have or I had uh, my intelligence kind of basic training after that so uh from memory that was I want to say 12 weeks of intelligence training um so that's where you learn all your basic skills you learn how to present to big groups of people and brief you're learning how to inform decision makers and um lots of maps lots of uh tactics and things like that so from a very young age in your career as an intelligence operator you actually get a lot of responsibility because you are there to inform the decision makers and those are usually officers of high rank and senior ncos of a high rank so Um, They need to make sure that when you finish your basic training, you have the skills um, to be able to then go forward and potentially brief those people and inform their decisions. And what did you enjoy the most about intelligence? There's a lot of things I really enjoyed. I think the fact that you're there to inform decision makers and provide them with enough information so they're able to make accurate decisions it felt really good because you knew that the work you were putting in and the work you were doing was assisting in keeping colleagues safe, keeping team members in the right places and assisting in what the battle space looked like. So I enjoyed that. I also did further on into my career, really enjoy um, talking, public speaking and talking to uh, large groups of people. So that was that was really cool as well. So after you finish the intelligence course, what does sort of the the day to day or what are some things that you did as an intelligence operator? Uh, So I worked in the tactical space. Um, I was at one NZ military intelligence company. So um, 
what you're really doing on the ground and focusing on is providing assistance to the tactical combat units. So uh, infantry uh, tankies, like LAV, uh, I don't know what that's called. Uh, like ar- we would call that armored. Yeah, armored yes. um, and like gun, guns and things like that. So you would do a lot of exercises in the field. Uh, you would go out and work on like uh, tactical intelligence. Um, you would be with HQs um, doing what's called um, IPB, intelligence preparation of the battle space. So you do lots of lots of training in that. Um, and then you're doing a lot of exercises within your own company to make sure your skills are where they're supposed to be. And did you deploy at all in that role? No, uh, I went on a few exercises to Australia. So we had some uh, international exercises. So I went over uh, to Australia and uh, it's called Talisman Sabre. So it's a massive exercise. And I think it's a five eyes exercise as well. So yeah, I have was, actually, it sounds familiar. I have heard of that. Yeah. So there was Canadians, Americans um, over there as well. Uh, and you're out in, in the field on exercise with all these big countries and we're just kind of New Zealand there to help out. So that's still cool. Um, so I was with, for that, I was uh, with the CEO of our task group. And so um, I would kind of brief him every day on what's happening, uh, if there's been any updates on the situation or enemy situation and things like that. So that was really cool. And how long did you spend in the intelligence branch? Uh, so I was in the intelligence branch for about five years. So once I had finished at MI company in the tactical kind of space, I went to um, HQ Joint Forces New Zealand. So that's more of an operational space. So uh, that's in Wellington. So I posted down there uh, for about a year and a half. And uh, what you're doing there is more assisting in... Uh, those on operations overseas, but from New Zealand. Interesting. And so what made you want to get out of intelligence and make the switch to MP? Yeah. So I, as I said, I was in intelligence for five years. So um, from that point, I kind of, I would say I was going through a bit of a quarter life crisis uh, in a way. I didn't really know what my why was and I was a bit lost and where I wanted my career to go to. Uh, and in my head, I kind of had a few options. I could stay in intelligence. I, I did really love the job or I could try something different and have an effect somewhere else. So, um, I did about a year of thinking because our good friend COVID, uh, arrived. So I had a lot of time to think about what, where I really wanted to direct my path. Um, and I had a lot of people say, why are you going from intelligence to MPs? Cause that doesn't really seem like a fair trade. And, the way I kind of described it to them was I want to put in, uh, I guess, more effort into the military that has given me so much. And for me to do that, I think MPs was a really good place to be because I get to assist in the organization and I get to make a difference that way as well. Um, So from there, I decided, okay, I'm going to go across to MPs. Was there any other occupation that kind of piqued your interest or was it just MP? Um, I would say just MP, I guess in the line of work that I was doing in intelligence, I did see things like investigations as something I would feel excited to do as well. So I thought it was kind of in the same realm. So yeah, I thought I would still enjoy it. And what was it like over there during COVID? Because I know for us, it was a little bit 
different, right? We had a lot of work from home, but then New Zealand completely shut its borders to, to outsiders. Yeah. So the COVID period for us was really, really difficult. So within that time when COVID first arrived, the government decided that the Defence Force would uh, help in that situation. So we were tasked with being at the isolation facilities, which were um, hotels all around New Zealand, and being there for when people were either, either coming home and needing to isolate for 14 days, and when the borders kind of opened up a little bit more, those people would still go to those isolation management facilities. So it was really rough, I think, on the Defence Force as a whole, because one minute everyone's training and doing their trade, and then the next minute we're all going to hotels for a long period of time, not necessarily doing a job that we signed up for. Right. And so you were doing that as well then, I assume? Yeah. So I was really lucky. I only had to do one kind of stint in it. So Mm -hmm. I think I did uh, a five-week time on and off because after that I got posted to HQJFNZ which was operational so I was it was more important for me to be there than do the um, isolation management hotels but um, I had to do it through Christmas and a lot of people in the defense force had to do it through Christmas New Year's didn't spend a lot of time with their families because they were away for long periods of time and I had to watch that so I had to watch some of my friends do that and it was really hard on them it was really tough Yeah, I would imagine. And not only that, it's like then if you're kind of being around and potentially have a higher risk of being exposed to COVID, you know, then are you taking that back to your family or are you isolating? Like there are so many levels to that. But it was the same in Canada where, you know, army infantry soldiers who are maybe reservists or some reg force did as well would have to go and like help out at the nursing homes and the hospitals or maybe not the hospitals but you know nursing homes and isolation places and it's like that's you know at the same time that's not what they signed up to do and it's kind of almost like outside of their their wheelhouse they don't necessarily know have a healthcare background right so I think that was very difficult I didn't do that during COVID but I think you know from some of the people that did it was pretty difficult yeah I think for everyone uh, every country it was so difficult and the one thing I do commend is the work that the decision makers in New Zealand and the chain of command, the effort they put in. I know that there were long hours. Some of them did so many long hours just to make decisions and get it right. Obviously, not everything was perfect. I don't think in a situation like COVID, anything would have been perfect. But they really did try and they put in so much effort. Um, it was just hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's hard. It's Everyone's trying to do the best they can with the information that they have at the time. And it's easy to have hindsight as 2020 to look back and say, oh, we should have done this or we shouldn't have done that. But at the time, it's like you you don't know what you don't know. And it's hard to make decisions on something that you haven't really experienced before. Like nothing like that has ever really happened before. It's a global pandemic. Who would have thought in our lifetime we would experience a global pandemic? And so... So then after you made the switch to MP, what does the training for that look like? Uh, so the training, I think it was about 14 weeks long. Um, and you're learning so many different things at once. And it's it's quite a tough course. So uh, you're learning a lot of legislation because MPs are bound by legislation. Um, you're learning a lot of uh, defensive tactics. So uh, learning how to use a baton and handcuffs and pepper spray. You're learning how to communicate. A lot of it is communicating. So 
that was really important, especially uh, on in training when we would go through scenarios. And you're kind of doing uh, the same kind of coursing as what a civilian police person would do, but it's just tailored to the military and you're doing a few things different. Mm-hmm. And are military police officers in New Zealand armed? No, no. So not even our civilian police officers are armed. Oh, so really? they do have weapons they can use, but they're not always going to be armed. Obviously, if there's a higher risk and they need to be armed, that'll be different. But day to day, no, no one's armed. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's so different from here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what was your favorite part about training to be an MP? I had a really good course. Uh, I would, on my course, I think... I was one of the ones that had experience within the military. Um, We started recruiting direct entrants, so you could uh, come in straight off the street after your basic training and be an MP, and that was not usual. So Mm -hmm. before that, it was just people who had some military experience who would trade change and things like that. Um, So I think my course was, my friends I made on the course was really cool. Um, and it was a joint environment as well. So that was an Air Force, Navy and Army course. So it was really cool to see the different environments and the different ways that every service did things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have to get pepper sprayed. So although at the time it wasn't fun, mm-hmm. like it's something that I'm like, okay, at least I did it. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? I, you know, we've, we've done sort of the gas huts here, I guess, yeah. during our basic training and for refresher training. I've never been like full on pepper sprayed before. Uh, so if you think about having sunburn and really bad sunburn, and then that on your face times a hundred, that that's what it was like. So do you have to get tased? No, so we don't we don't hold tasers, so we don't have to get tased. So that's good. I don't know if I would have been as excited to do that, um, but I knew with pepper spray it would be over eventually. Just had to take its time. And then, so as an MP, are you still only strictly army, or do you ever work sort of like on a navy base or air force base? Uh, we do have people who are in the army that do work on. Um, Air Force and Navy bases, particularly up in Auckland. So in Auckland, there's all three services have a base up there. Uh, so they do work together. But where I am, because I'm in Palmerston North, it's and uh, we're more an army camp. I I really do just work with army. I have worked with Air Force in the Air Force base sometimes. Um, so so we can we can if we need to we can jump to another service, but it just depends on where you are, where you're located. Yeah, in Canada, it's we kind of call it a, a purple trade where, you know, that along with a few other trades like medic and things like that, they end up, it might be, okay, you're an army medic, but you're posted to this ship and now you have to go sail on a Navy ship. Yeah, but that's the same. Um, we're a purple trade. So if needed, you can then jump from one service to the other. And then what kind of things would you be doing as an MP? Are you patrolling the bases? Are you doing investigations? Yeah, so there's kind of two streams you can go down. So there's the policing stream. Uh, you start off, everyone needs policing experience. I think to be an effective investigator, you have to be able to police because you have to be able to deal and know what's happening on the ground. So you go down that stream when you first finish your um, basic MP investigators course. And that's anything from... Uh, road policing to going out on weekends uh, when soldiers are out and about, maybe on the town, drinking alcohol, things like that. So you can go out, um, patrol that. Um, And then there's the other stream where it's investigation. So you're mainly focusing on 
uh, any kind of bigger cases and any bigger offences that have been committed where it has to be investigated and there has to be things like witness statements and interviews conducted and um, lots of analysis of legislation and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so once you became an MP, did you find what you were looking for after switching out of the intelligence trade? Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to obviously both. Um, I really loved both in the fact that it it did challenge me a lot um, and it gave me different reasons and different ways of assisting and helping people. MPs, you're giving back to the service, really, if you if you are an MP. You're policing the service and making sure that everything is abided by legislation. And so that, for me, was, was good. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed making a difference in that space. And then intelligence was good because I'm making a difference in a different space. So, yeah, for sure. I think I, I did what I set out and what I wanted to achieve, so I'm happy with that. Okay, and then... From there, what kind of interesting tasks or things like that did you do as an MP? Uh, So I got to go and help on this. um, It was a conference. so so, uh, And we got to go and be, I guess you could say, security for the conference. There was different um, countries coming over, uh, the US. I think there was was Canadians over there as well. Um, So I got to see what it was like not to be a CP operator as such, but I got to... Um, kind of do a little bit of that work where we were going out to dinners with um, the commanders and stuff, making sure they're all okay and and things like that. So I really enjoyed that. And I did meet different people from different countries Mm -hmm. and that type of work as well. So that was really cool. And then so does New Zealand have CP operators as a separate entity or is that just something that you guys would be tasked to do? Yeah, so CP is for us like a specialty and it is a part of MP. So only MPs can... Uh, go and do the selection for it. As we're such a small country, we don't have a lot of CP operators. There are still a few more, I think, senior NCOs, mm-hmm. but it's obviously not as big as what as what Canada has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know Canada has switched back and forth, so they've gone through periods, you know. And I'm not um, a CP operator, so I can't, you know, I'm not trying to <laughs> speak as an expert, but I do know that, you know, in the past it's been only MP, and then I think sort of more during the Afghanistan years they opened it up to everyone. So I know some Navy people who went through, and then now it's restricted to you have to be uh, MP or combat arms to apply. Yeah, I think, I, I'm not sure if they would go that way, our country would go that way. I can see the benefits for having it just MPs and also, you know, mixing it up for yeah. the different services doing it. Yeah, just then you can sort of draw from a wider pool, especially with trades that are so small, then it's like it's kind of almost the same people every year. And if they don't want to do it, then there's not really any new people or that many new people coming in. Yeah. So tell me about becoming a conduct after capture instructor. What interested you about that? So throughout my whole career, I had known of conduct after capture. It's something that uh, I think people see in the New Zealand Defence Force as one of the hardest selections you can do mentally. Um, for the first, I would say, three three years of my career, I, as I said, didn't have a lot of self-confidence and I didn't know if I would be able to push myself mentally to be able to do something like conduct after capture. And it took me a lot of work on on myself and a lot of growth 
to get to where I am today and get to the place I was before I decided I wanted to do conduct after mm-hmm. capture. So uh, I think I just finished my military police basic course and I love that course and I received the top policing award for that course. And so that's kind of like an all-round excellence award. And in that, it did give me a lot of confidence and I had worked so hard to get to a place where I was I was like, yeah, I can actually push myself and I can actually do things that scare me. Um, so after that, I I said, what the, what the hell? I may as well go and do something else that I know will push me mentally and potentially physically and see what happens. I never intended it to be something I would pass. I went into it with a really open mind and thought of it as it's an experience to help me grow as a person mm-hmm. and potentially be something that I would enjoy doing. So... Going into the selection, I think that's something that really benefited me and helped me a lot is that I went into it so open-minded that I'm there to push myself and I'm only in competition or whatever with myself. And it really helped me through. So um, I did the selection, probably one of the hardest things I've done in my career for sure. Uh, And I ended up passing the selection. So it was really nice to know that I had got to such a positive and great place especially with my mental resilience to a point where something that I thought would be something I would never be able to achieve I achieved Um, so that was really cool. And then after selection do you guys do level C right away or is that part of the selection? That's a part of the selection so we do um, the kind of selection part and then yeah and then the level C part. And prior to this did you know anyone who was a khaki or had you spoken to anyone beforehand? Uh, I I had known of people being khakis. I didn't necessarily talk to anyone in particular about their experiences, but a lot of the, the khakis I knew, I saw them as really tough, strong human beings. I had always looked at the khakis I knew, especially in uh, intelligence. It's quite, there's some of them there. And I saw them, I said, those guys are what you want to aspire to be. So I never thought in a million years that I would be able to pass something like that. So you had a kind of unique experience with your khaki course and that, again, since New Zealand is very small, so you came to Canada to do that. Yes, I did. So we had finished the selection portion uh, and there wasn't enough, there potentially wasn't going to be enough people to run a full course in New Zealand. Um, So myself and one other got asked if we wanted to do the course in Canada uh, which was, I think, a month after our our selection. I'm not going to turn down a trip to Canada for starters, and also I would have loved. I loved it. It was really good. So, so I was like, sure, I'll go. And um, so me and one other flew over to Canada. And I think the first day, I thought, what am I doing? Because one, I'm in a country I've never been to before, in a different environment, doing a course that I know is going to be really challenging. And I was sitting in the classroom uh, going, where am I? I don't know where I am. Um, So it took me a little while to get used to not only the kind of culture change, but also the fact that I'm now on a course that's going to be seven weeks of really hard work. Jumping back to level C. So during that, obviously, it's not an easy course by any means. And you said one of the hardest courses that you've ever done. What resiliency skills or tools did you use to help you get through that? Yeah, so I went into it, like I said, with an open mind, but I also went into it thinking, 
this will eventually end. This is not forever. And so I think that really helped. I had a lot of time to think at points and what I would do was kind of tell myself that I've been through worse. So because I was telling myself, you know, I've been through worse, this is going to end eventually at some point, uh, it was really good because it kept me on track. Those times where potentially I wanted to quit, I just reminded myself that this will be over and do I want to be successful or do I want to stop there and regret the fact that I didn't continue? I think, you know, I've, I've never really heard someone quitting a course or anything that feels like that's the right decision they made. You know, I, I of course, if you have an injury and you're going to injure yourself for life or like do further damage, but that, that split second decision where people quit, I find often they regret it or they want to go back and do the course. Yeah. Whereas if you can get that out of your mind for that few seconds and then continue on, yeah. it'll just, it'll be so much better by the end. For sure. And I had gotten to a place before going on to Kiki Selection where I want to challenge myself. I want to be, and I know it's so cliche to say, but being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. That, that is something I really try and do. I try and push myself in any situation. And I think it's so good to do those things, to challenge yourself, to do things that are going to make you feel nervous and anxious because that's how you grow as a person. So I think knowing that feeling that I was feeling that before I had started, that was so good and a very big motivator to, to continue. Yeah, and I mean, I've read so many of the books from the men from the Vietnam era. Yeah. And one of them was in captivity for, I think, nine years. He was a POW, which is insane. And then even Amanda Lindhout's book, like over a year and the treatment she got was so terrible. So it's like, okay, yes, you know, level C is not an easy course to do. That can just be one of the tools that you can use and thinking about like, yes, this is hard, but these people did this for years and you know I can get through this week 100% and I think that's really important as well is knowing that these people who have been in captivity you're probably not doing 5% of what they've done so yeah that's super super important to remember as well so you get to Canada was it a big culture shock for you or like what were your first impressions of Canada yeah for sure it was definitely a big culture shock um our country is so small so we don't have things like Walmart and I think we have one Costco that's in Auckland which is about six hours away from where I live so massive shopping places and malls was for me so uncomfortable I was like where am I what is this candy I don't know what this is and I think the environment militaries operate differently and have a different way of teaching and that was something I had to kind of get used to a bit as well, but also trying to focus on the content of the course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, it was really good because Canadians, you guys are so lovely. So I had really good people I was around. And then was the course difficult for you or did you enjoy it or a bit of both? I think to say that it wasn't difficult would be a lie. I think anyone who's done the khaki instructor's course will say that it is difficult. It is it is hard. Um, there are a lot of time pressures and you're learning a new skill set. That's with any course 
in general, but the skill set is really important. So although it was hard and it was difficult at times, I really enjoyed it as well. So here's a question, because I'm sure a lot of people are probably curious or they have misconceptions about CAC or being a khaki. And I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but people would ask, why do you want to do that to people? Or why do you want to be a khaki? What is it about being a khaki that interests you? Definitely, I've had that question many times because I think people think khaki is not what it is. <laughs> so they don't understand it. Um, and obviously there's things we can't talk about because of the training that we provide. So a lot of people really don't understand what we do. But I think what I enjoy about it and like about it so much is the fact that I'm able to provide training and I'm wearing five different hats while doing it. It's not just a black and white job. You're instructing and also teaching at the same time and doing so many different things in order to provide whoever's coming through, a trainee, a student, whoever, with the best training so that when or if hopefully never, but they are in a captivity environment, they have skills and they have things they can lean on in that environment to get them through it. And I think that is the most important takeaway is you are providing that training if something were to go wrong in somebody's life so that they are able to get through it and hopefully come out the other side having utilized the skills that you've taught. It wouldn't do anyone any favors if if the training was easy, you wouldn't be, people would not be properly prepared for that type of scenario if the training was not difficult. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, you can ask the question, would you rather somebody who has no understanding or training in a potential captivity environment to go through that without any skill set at all? Or would you rather somebody that does have a skill set and that has been trained and to go through that. And I would I would really rather somebody who's got that skill set and has been through the training mm-hmm. to be in that environment. Mm-hmm. And then Canada works closely with New Zealand. So you've actually gotten the opportunity to come back to Canada a few times. Yes. Yeah. So I've been back to Canada three times in a year. So I was here last year for three months, about three months, and this year for another three months. So really I've spent six months in Canada out of a year, which I am so lucky um, to be able to have this opportunity. And I think it's really good for our country's relationship building, but also I think in general, CAC, Canada and New Zealand, we have a really good relationship. I guess one of the benefits of New Zealand being very small is that you do get to come for opportunities like this. Yeah. And I, like I said, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to come. Um, and, you know, there's obviously other New Zealand instructors that have come over as well. So I think we're all really lucky to be able to share instructors and then provide a different experience because obviously things are different in New Zealand to what they are in Canada and vice versa. And then and you also, you know, got some time off, right? So with that time off, you got to visit sort of some of the North American destinations that maybe we take for granted, like New York and Washington yeah. and some spots in the States. Yeah, so... We're so far away from everything. Like we have Australia and then we have uh, Thailand, Bali, those places, which are kind of close, but they're still very far away. So being able to come over here and do a bit of training, especially uh, a bit of um, being able to come over here and doing and being able to travel a bit has been really nice. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we went to New York. 
amazing place. I don't know if I could live there coming from such a small, small town, um, but loved it. It was so good. And Washington, getting to see the White House and things that are kind of outside of the norm of New Zealand was, was really cool. I guess the areas that you guys would see on movies. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. I, I was in Times Square and I was standing there like, I've only seen this on the movies, but yeah. this is actually a, a real place. Yeah. Um, and then so you are making another sort of switch within your career. Yeah, so I am, I've been in the regular force for seven years. Um, and although I have really loved my time, I'm getting to a point now in my career where I want to kind of switch paths and go down a different path. So uh, I'm going reserves intelligence and then I'm getting a full-time contract with CAC in New Zealand. So uh what usually happens is you have external instructors and I know it's the same in Canada and you also have internal instructors because we're so small we um, don't have a massive internal kind of capability we have an OC and a uh, CACWO and that's it uh, and usually there's also a CAC NCO however just because of limited numbers we haven't had that so I'm going into the CAC NCO role um, and being full-time so that'll be cool. And then what are you planning on doing after that? Or do you want to do that for sort of an indefinite period of time? I think um, I really enjoy CAC and I enjoy the training I provide. So especially for the next couple of years, I'm really looking forward to being full time um, after that. And then, yeah, after that, who knows, I might just move to Canada. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've already done so much, right? So I'm sure that you you know, the opportunities are kind of endless for you and there's lots of different roads that you could potentially go down. Yeah, I really love, as I said, to challenge myself. And I think all throughout my career, I have challenged myself and coming from intelligence and then going to MPs and then CAC. And it's been a really good career. And I think I have um, made a difference in areas. So for me, I'm really happy with that. And so going forward, I think taking away all the skills and uh, the things and the growth that I've had within the military because I was only 20 when I joined and I'm nearly 27 now so it's still a big chunk of your life um, taking those away is something that I'm really happy I can do and you mentioned at the beginning in basic training you'd sort of struggled with your fitness but I know now you're quite disciplined and you get sort of little goals in mind yeah. to do. So talk to me about that. Yeah, so I, as I said, the, uh, for about three years, I lacked self-confidence a lot. I was never the fittest. I struggled with my fitness tests. Um, I struggled with motivation. And uh, I didn't really know what I was doing in that department, in the physical kind of department. I hated running. I don't think anyone loves well there's people out there who love running but crazy people crazy people but that wasn't me I'd really struggled with running and cardio um so I had to tell myself and I had to switch my mindset a lot I had to say to myself if you dislike something do it so much that you enjoy it so things with like running I decided to do it so often that it got to a point that I enjoyed it which I don't know why, but I did. So I would run small Ks, like 5K or 7K, and then after a while started running like half marathons and and stuff like that, which was really cool. And it also really helped with my, my confidence because I knew that I was able to achieve these things. I was able to achieve the goals I set 
myself and it really helped with my physical fitness in general. I would do that and I still do it now. I set myself a goal that I want to achieve and I work towards that. But you can't rush these things and that was another thing I had to remember is it's not a race. I'm only in competition with myself and to get better at something you have to put in the time and effort. Yeah, I hear you on the running. So coming from a dive background, you know, the divers are always known for being fast and being good at running. And I was never like, I grew up playing sports, um, but I was, I've just always struggled with running. Like, you know, I would get terrible slide stitches and just have trouble breathing and just, I was never fast. So then going through my dive courses, it's like, I'm such a piece of shit. Like I can't, I was, the dive skills were great because I had tons of diving experiences before I joined the military, but then I was just felt like I was viewed as this subpar person because I wasn't a good runner. Meanwhile, you know, there were some guys who were so fast, but underwater, they were just a disaster, you know, but no one can see you underwater for the most part. So, um, so yeah, it's a struggle, but now I'm, I'm kind of getting to that point where I'm like, forcing myself to do it. And someone asked me one day, they're like, if you hate running so much, like, why are you doing it? But I think in the military too, it's just one of those things where it's like, you're expected to be good at it and do it. And I don't want to be in a situation where, well, it's going to happen anyway, but I would like to lessen it. But, you know, being in a situation where you're running as a group and like, I don't want to be the last person holding everyone up and being terrible. And like, no matter how much I run, I find like I'm, I'm still so slow and it, and it frustrates me. And then that, that makes me want to work on it more. You know, it would be, it would be the easy route to just be like, yeah, I hate running. So I'm not going to run and I'm just going to ride my bike instead because I enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. And that's something I had to work really hard on is is my self-talk as well. Like for the first few years of my career, I had a really negative self-talk and I would say things like, you don't deserve to be here. You aren't good enough. I would be comfortable with being at the back instead of trying to push myself harder. And I really had to work on the fact that I knew I was never going to be great at running. And that's something that was, I'm never going to be first doing running a marathon. But I knew that if I just continue to push myself and and be positive about myself and say, hey, look, you might not be amazing at it, but you are trying your best. You are working 100% to reach your goals and changing that mindset and the self-talk and the things I would say to myself really benefited me. Don't get me wrong, there's times where... Being angry at myself for being last was something that pushed me through. So I think you can look at it from both ways and both ways are great. Whatever gets you through something and however you push yourself to achieve your goals and what you want to do is... is Yeah, because I think there is... you, You do kind of need a bit of both because if you're always like, I'm amazing, it's okay that I'm not good at this and it's okay that I'm not good at that, that's fine. But if you're someone that wants to push yourself and improve, it's hard to do that if you're a thousand percent satisfied with, with where you are in the moment there. For me personally, it's like, I, sometimes I am too hard on myself, but I need to have that small percentage of like negative self-talk to, in order to motivate me to get through something or to, to push harder. For sure. And I'm the same. And I think I, not only is that with physical fitness, but that's with everything I've set out to achieve is that I want to be better. I don't want to stay in place and be comfortable. I want to do things that are going to make me better and it's so easy to stay in one place, stay stagnant and be comfortable. If that's what you choose to do, you're never going to grow. And so I think running is where it started for me in physical fitness, but now it's something that I try and do in everything I do in life. 
And it's hard too, especially with fitness these days. And I've been feeling it a lot lately is that there's so much out there and there are so many different programs and it's like, Oh my God, what do I want to do? Do I want to do CrossFit? Do I want to do a calisthenics program? Do I want to do that? And there's, it's, it can be so overwhelming that it's hard to just do something. And it, and it's easy to get into the all or nothing mentality of like, well, if I'm not following this program exactly, I'm failing. Whereas it's really like, well, if you get out and do like a workout that you randomly looked up online and you do that every few days per week, that's better than not doing anything. Yeah, hundred percent. And you could easily fall into the trap of not doing anything. And then that's going to affect your motivation. And then mm-hmm. one day turns into one week and mm-hmm. one week turns into a whole year. And it's so easy to fall into that if you let yourself do that. And I hear a lot of people saying motivation is one thing, but consistency is another. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. The days that you don't want to get up and do anything and you're going to find it hard is the days you need to get up and go and work out and do an hour of burpees or, you know, whatever whatever you want to do yeah. to achieve your goals and get where you need to be or yeah. want to be, that's just what you have to do. And so talking about overcoming things and doing challenges, a few weeks ago or last month, I suggested to someone else that he go skydiving and you thought that that was absolutely crazy and you did not want to do that. And then you ended up seeing some of the skydivers landing and you changed your mind. So talk to me about that thought process. If you met Renee six years ago, there was no way in hell she would be getting up on a plane and jumping out of it and thinking that was fun. She would have been too scared, too anxious and just would not have wanted to do that. And anything you would have said, she would have turned down. But going into that I did turn it down for a bit. I remember I was, no, 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 I don't want to do it. And I thought about it and I thought, you know what? Once in a lifetime, potentially opportunity. And I saw them come down. I said, if they can do it, I can do it. So so I ended up in a plane and jumped out of an airplane. So what thoughts were going through your head? Because it takes about 20, 25 minutes to get up to altitude yeah. in a tiny plane. Yeah. So I first, when we were walking to the plane, I thought, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I had to self-talk, like, you are here, you can do it, don't worry. We got into the plane, and I thought it would be a big plane where you could fit eight people in it or something like that. Nope, you could fit four people, that's you and the person, the tandem person who's taking you down. So we jumped in, and it was very squishy. And I remember saying to the guy who was my tandem person, please don't let me think, make sure we're out of this plane straight away. And I remember he laughed and said, don't worry, you won't have time to think. So that definitely helped. But I tried not to think about the fact I was leaving the airplane and I just was looking at the scenery, trying to distract myself. But when we got up there and the door opened, I definitely knew I was jumping out. So they turned me around and he really did not give me time to think. I think I was turned around and then one second later we were out of the plane. And I remember we did like a little bit of a spin and I was like, I can't, what am I doing? I don't know where I am. I can't believe I'm in Canada jumping out of an airplane. And then I looked down and it, it's a different feeling. Like, you know what the feeling's like. You look down and you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. And it was the best, the best time of my life. Yeah, it it's not, you know, you don't get the like the roller coaster feeling in your stomach. It's very, it just feels like you're st- still and there's a lot of wind like it doesn't really feel like you're falling it's kind of hard to explain unless you've done it and then when you landed you were like that was the best thing I've ever done in my life yeah for sure and those experiences and doing things like that like I back 
in the day, I would never have pushed myself to do something like that. And then it's just a testament to all the work I've done on myself to the point where, yes, I'm scared. Yes, I don't want to do it. And, you know, you just have to push through that and do things you don't want to do sometimes. I I was 100% the same way. Like on my dive course, I almost didn't jump off the back of the ship with my dive gear because it was too high and I hate jumping from heights. And I still do, but I just, you know, I forced myself to do it. And then through that, it's like, okay, well, maybe I should start, you know, rock climbing because that's kind of involves heights or whatever. And then that just kind of became normal to me. And then it's like, you know, I got the crazy idea to go for a tandem. And, you know, luckily the guy was uh, stronger than me and sort of wrestled me out of the plane. If he had just listened to me initially when I said I didn't want to go and I had landed with the plane, I probably never would have gone up again. I just would have felt so shitty about myself and I would have felt like a failure um, but I probably wouldn't have tried that again. Yeah. And those things that scare you, like, I think you have to embrace it as much as it scares you and you don't want to do it. Sometimes you need a push. Yeah. Sometimes you need somebody there in anything to yeah. just push you a little bit. And then once you start doing it, you're like, oh. Yeah. Like, once you do it, you yeah. feel like a million bucks. It's so hard to explain. And people are like, oh, why would anyone go skydiving? You know, but when you look at specific numbers and incidents, like tandem skydiving is very safe. But the feeling that you get yes, the jump is amazing and the views are amazing and it's a really cool experience, but it's that, like you were saying, the self-work about, okay, after you land and you've done it and you know that you overcame that fear, like you you just feel like a million bucks. Yeah, for sure. And that's with everything. Every challenge I've set myself and I've done it, the feeling afterwards is worth so much more than the fact that I was scared and I had anxiety for maybe 30 minutes, you know? So I would rather that feeling, the happy feeling, the feeling of achieving something, Mm -hmm then trying to embrace being scared because there's no point in doing that because you're not going to push yourself if you just take your the things you're scared at and use that yeah after you get over that like the the big thing like skydiving then sort of the little things every day that you might encounter that might have previously kind of caused a little bit of stress or whatever it's kind of like no, like that's this nothing. is this is nothing. Yeah. I just jumped out of an airplane. Yeah, you know? for sure. And that's that's definitely I've had that happen, you know, multiple times where there's little things that might stress me out or might be scary, like standing up in public speaking in front of lots of people or something like that. And then yeah. in my head I'm like, Well, I've done I've done other things that are way scarier than mm-hmm. that, so I can I can do those small things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you have any sort of physical or um, you know, fitness goals for the near future coming up anymore? Half marathons or full marathons or Ironmans? Oh, funny story. I decided I would come to Canada and run a half marathon, but we'll save that for another day. Well, you didn't decide until after you were here about a week before the race. Yeah, I, yeah. So I do things like that where I impulsively, you know, get something in my head and I I want to do it. I want to achieve it. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think sometimes if you, if there's something you want to do, however, however crazy it might sound you should definitely do it and yeah I I didn't train for that I should have probably trained I lost two toenails so that's on me but Mm. I think I'm at a really good stage in my fitness journey where I don't need to focus on passing my fitness test or using that as motivation or losing weight or Mm. or things like that so my overall fitness goal now is really to maintain my fitness to a point where I'm happy being able to go out and randomly run a half marathon or do things that I enjoy without struggling with them. And I think it's also to maintain being healthy because fitness is a journey. And from 
the start of where I was to where I am now, I'm so proud, but I, I want to maintain that. I don't want to ever kind of go back to not being motivated and not pushing myself as hard as I can go. So mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of just do things that make me happy now. My final question that I always ask everyone, what advice would you give to women looking to join the military? Um, I think there would kind of be a couple pieces of advice. The first one would be trust in yourself. You might not be the best at something. You might not be, for, for example, I was never an amazing runner or whatever like that, but trust that you are going to work hard to achieve whatever you want to achieve. And although it might be scary at times, push through it because it potentially could be the best thing that you've ever done. And then the second piece of advice would be don't be afraid to say yes to every experience that comes your way, no matter what the challenge will be, because yes, you only live once, YOLO, but it's true. And you never know when you're going to finish your military career or when that's going to potentially end. So make sure you take everything that comes your way and look at it as something that is going to help you grow and something that is going to make you a better person and it's going to benefit you in the long run. Mm-hmm. I have, I've had similar, well, people offer sort of similar advice, but saying a lot of people sort of self-select out of something. They think like, oh, I'm not good enough or I'll never make it. And so I'm not going to even attempt to do this course or occupation or whatever. But it's like, And I also read something that, you know, women are more prone to thinking that way than men. So for the women listening, it's like, who cares? Like, go and sign up for something. Try it. You know, prepare as best you can. Don't be too hard on yourself. And, you know, let them decide if you're not good enough. Let the personnel selection officers and, you know, all of the people that decide these things and run the course staff, let them decide whether or not you're good enough because, Oftentimes, people just don't even take that first step in doing a course and trying something. Yeah, for sure. And that was that was me. I, for a good chunk of my, you know, three years of my military career, I was I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to fail as mm-hmm. well, and I didn't want to be looked at as a failure. Mm-hmm. So that really meant that things I did want to do, I I didn't do because of that mentality. But like you said, do it. Prepare as much as you can. If you fail. It's, it's growth. It's learning. Ask for feedback. Ask what you can do better. And if it's something you really, really want to achieve and a goal that you know is something you want to do, then do it. Because if you don't do it and you just don't do it because you're scared or you don't want to fail, then you're never going to. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Renee. And I'm glad that we got past our technical difficulties And we got to do this. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. The biggest way to help support this podcast is to leave a rating and review on your Apple Podcasts and Spotify apps. You can also visit my Instagram page at shootlikeagirlpodcast to see photos from the guests, keep up to date with the podcast, and find out about any merchandise releases.